So that was an introduction to the book of Revelation. Um, maybe hope, hopefully it gave some things to think about. But today we're going to look at the four views of Revelation. You may say, I, what do you mean four views? I only know of one view. Uh, well, you're in good company. Uh, most people in today's world only know of one view of the book of Revelation. And that's because throughout history and throughout time, there is a, there's risen up popular views of Revelation. And the popular view of Revelation in our day, which has been really, really popular, probably, in, you know, here in America, probably for the past, you know, 50 to 70 years, is the view probably most of us know, the view that I grew up with, the view that if you turn on Christian television, that's the view you're going to hear. Uh, it's the futurist view. It's Revelation, how it relates to our day. You know, we know we're living in the last days of Revelation because we see these signs and, you know, everything in the book of Revelation is coming to pass. We hear that a lot. And that's been the main proponent uh, and the view of our day. But it certainly has not been the main view of Revelation throughout the last 2,000 years. And there certainly are other views of Revelation as well. So again, my job and objective here is to make us aware of those things. Uh, because even when I went to Bible college, I was not made aware of those things. I was told, here's the right view, you learn the right view, and that's it. You don't need to know any other view. We were told there were other views, we were not told what they were. Uh, you know, I don't want to do that. I want to give people information uh, and then let people make up their minds uh, based on the information that's given and what, you know, you feel after reading and studying the book of Revelation. But certainly there has not just been one view of Revelation for the past uh, 2,000 years of church history. In fact, you know, Revelation was one of the last, it barely made it into the canon of our scripture. It barely made it into our Bible uh, because a lot of people you know, didn't think much about Revelation because of how mysterious it was, because of the signs and symbols. You know, it wasn't adopted, you know, wholly into the church until probably the fourth century. Uh, and even, you know, in, in the more Eastern Orthodox church, probably till, you know, the fifth to seventh century. Um, guys like Martin Luther, even though he had a certain view of Revelation, uh, he didn't think too fondly of it. Uh, John Calvin, John Calvin wrote a whole commentary uh, except for one book, and that's the book of Revelation. He never wrote about the book of Revelation. He didn't touch it. Um, so the book of Revelation from the beginning has been debated on its meaning. So that's what I want us to look at today is these different views that people have held and do hold today on the book of Revelation. And, and each view, they have good things. Each view have, has things that, you know, you probably can see is wrong with it. Um, you know, there's probably no perfect view of Revelation. But we're going to get into these today, and there are four of them. There are four views of Revelation. Uh, these four views is called the historicist view, the historicist. Of course, we can recognize that the key word there is, uh, you know, history, the historicist. Uh, the next view that we're going to look at is the futurist view. That's the view that we're probably all most familiar with. The next view that we'll look at is what is called the preterist view of Revelation. Preterist meaning past, and then the idealist view of Revelation, the idealist. So there are four views of Revelation, historicist, futurist, preterist, and idealist. So let's jump into these because it's already after 11 o'clock and that doesn't make me happy. So um, we might have to order lunch today, okay? Well, I'll, I'll just buy everybody lunch and we'll just stay here all day. 
Uh, first of all, the historicist view. All right, the historicist view is the first one on our paper that we'll look at. These are not in any particular order. Um, I started with probably the shortest one first. The historicist view, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about it because today it's not a widely held view at all, to say the least. Um, there is, I don't know of really any Bible scholars or prominent evangelical preachers or colleges or churches that teach the historicist view of Revelation. However, there was once a time that the historicist view of Revelation was the main view of Revelation for the church, especially back in the days around the Reformation. What is the historicist view of Revelation? The historicist view is a running account of the whole of church history and also world history written in advance from the time of John to the return of Christ. The historicist view says, beginning with John, all these visions, all these uh, trumpets and seals and bowls, they, they picture what's going on in the church and in the world from the first century all the way up to the coming of Christ. So there's things that are being fulfilled all throughout the ages and all throughout the years. According to this view, the seven seals and the four horsemen represent the decline of the Roman Empire. The 144,000 who are sealed represent the worldwide spread of Christianity through the world. The locust invasion is the rise of Islam on the world scene. And the beast is the Roman Catholic Church and the papal system. Other events highlighted in this view is the Protestant Reformation, the French Revolution, the Napoleonic error, among other things. Uh, again, if you look through your uh, chart here, what the, what the chart here in our pamphlet does, it takes you chapter by chapter through the book showing you the, the view from every, um, every view. So you can see how the signs and symbols in Revelation play out through history with the rise and the fall of the Roman Empire, the spread of Christianity, Islam, Muhammad, going all the way up to the Reformation, even up to the present day today. So it has a unfolding view of history throughout the whole book of Revelation. And again, the positive aspects of this view is that at one time, this was the main view of the church. Um, it has its roots in the Reformation, and all of the Reformers were historicists. And there are some big names that are listed here. Uh, names like John Knox, William Tyndall, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, George uh, Whitefield, Charles Finney, C.H. Spurgeon, all those old names that we hear about when we talk about church history, they all held a historicist view of Revelation. Uh, the historicist view of Revelation can point to striking historical parallels to the prophecies in Revelation. You can look at them and say, yeah, I can see where that happens. I can see how, how that fits in. And you can kind of see some parallels in this view of Revelation. And as a running history all throughout the church age, Revelation has been relevant to all church ages. One of the things about Revelation, whether you have a past view, a futurist view, or uh, it's going to most of the time exempt somebody. You know, if Revelation wasn't written until, you know, for people 2,000 years into the future, 
And it doesn't really do much for most of the people that lived in history. If it did everything in the past, then it really doesn't do much for people that are living in the future. But this view, you know, it gets unfolding throughout history. So every person, every age can kind of look for the signs of how revelation is unfolding before them. Uh, The critical aspects of this view. So for every view, we're going to look at what it is, some details about it, the positive and the critical uh, aspects of it. The critical aspects of this view is that historicists really rose to popularity out of a reaction and a response to the Roman Empire and to the Pope and to the church controlling. Uh, So obviously because the Roman Catholic Church was seen as uh, evil in the eyes of the Reformers, they automatically put the Roman Catholic Church in the place of the beast of Revelation and really formed everything else around that. So it really was a response to the beast of, I mean, unto the Roman Catholic Church. And, you know, I've seen that happen today. Uh, We see that in the futurist view of Revelation. Uh, You know, Saddam Hussein will come up on the scene, and now there's books written about Saddam Hussein restoring Babylon. And then he dies, and then somebody else rises up, and then there's books written about him fitting the Revelation, and then he goes off the scene. So, you know, we always have a tendency, people want to try to fit Revelation into what's happening in their day, you know, and that's happened uh, all throughout history, even with the historicist view. So the historicist view is really a reactionary response to the Roman Catholic Church and probably has prejudices built in because of that. Um, Those who hold it uh, do not agree on many of the details, Uh, even though there's some that they do. A lot of the details are not agreed upon. Um, And though it was the dominant view of the Protestant church for 500 years, it's not had much following since the late 1800s. So again, today, this is not really seen as a viable view of Revelation, even though for, you know, a good amount of time in the history of the church, it was seen as a as the predominant view of the book of Revelation. So that's the historicist view. I'm not going to give a lot of details, but, you know, because of the place it holds today in, in uh, interpretations of Revelation. The next view holds a big place in the contemporary view of Revelation, and that is the futurist view. And again, the futurist view is the view that we probably are all familiar with. I was brought up with it. You know, it was the the first view I was exposed to. I preached it and taught it uh, like it was nobody's business when I first got into the ministry. That's all I wanted to talk about was revelation. That's all I wanted to talk about was end-time prophecy. Uh, In fact, the first three years, Lisa and I were married on our anniversary. We went to Pigeon Forge so I could go to a week-long Bible prophecy conference in Pigeon Forge and listen to Perry Stone uh, teach Bible prophecy. And Lisa thought she had married the most craziest person on the planet because for our anniversary, I wanted to go to end-time prophecy uh, conferences. And she was probably right. Um, So the first time we went to the beach on our anniversary, she was really happy that she didn't have to sit in a hotel while I was at the prophecy conference or you're dragging her along with me. Um, But obviously, the futurist view, I mean, it's the most popular view today, and it's a fascinating view. And to me, I think the most fascinating part of the futurist view, and I know it was for me, uh, is you feel like you are really a part of what God is doing in the world. You know, you feel that you see all these things happening and, and you relate and it corresponds with the things of Revelation. You really feel like, man, look what God is doing. Man, look at Scripture coming to pass. And you really have this feeling that you're a part of something. You're a part of prophecy unfolding. 
You're a part of seeing these things come to pass, you know, and, and really that's a, and that's a great feeling. And, you know, it, it, it kind of gives you a little bit of a, of a spiritual high there when you're trying to figure out everything, because I wanted to do that. I wanted to figure out everything, and I wanted to dig into to all the details uh, of that. So this view is, you know, probably the most popular view. Again, turn on the television. You know, that's what you're going to hear. Pick up a book in a Christian bookstore. That's what you're going to read. It's just the, the view of our day. It's the popular view of our day. What is the futurist view, though? The futurist view sees everything beginning with chapter 4 of Revelation onward, as yet to be fulfilled even in our future. So we're still waiting on things to be fulfilled in our future. And these events lead up to the events of the end of the world, lead up to the, the coming of Christ and the resurrection and the millennium and the eternal state. According to this view... Futurists describe the book of Revelation into three sections based on chapter 1, verse 19. That says, write the things which you have seen, the things which are now, and the things which shall take place later, the things that shall be in the future. So that's how the futurists divide the book of Revelation, between the things that, that you have seen. The things that John has seen are the things... Uh, of chapter 1 that, that he has talked about. The things that are now is chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. Those are the things that are happening in the churches that John is writing to. And then the things that shall be hereafter uh, is described in the future's view as things that are going to happen after the church age, at the end of human history. So chapter 1 describes the past, 2 and 3 describe the future, and the, or the present, and the rest of the book describes the future. Futurists argue that a consistently literal or plain interpretation is to be applied in understanding the book of Revelation. That's, that's what the futurists really pride themselves on, is interpreting the book of Revelation more literal than any other view. Even though if you notice, as I mentioned last week, there is no way to interpret all the book of Revelation as literal. Uh, for if you're a futurist, you don't even get past the first couple of verses without interpreting something as not literal. Uh, so one of the you know, big debates, like I mentioned last week, is how do we interpret literal and figurative? Because there are things that in one verse you may interpret it literally. But a few verses later or a chapter over, you interpret something spiritual or symbolic. You know, and again, do, we don't just pick and choose what we interpret as literal or symbolic, but the futurist view is primarily, first and foremost, we look to a literal view of the Bible. So, a hundred pound hailstones would be literal, uh, two fire-breathing prophets would be literal, but a seven-headed beast would not be literal. Uh, so, but the rule is, in Futures view, if you can interpret literally, interpret it literally first. In chapter 4, verse 1 of the book of Revelation, Futurists see chapter 4, verse 1 as the rapture of the church to heaven. They see the rapture of the church to heaven. We'll talk about, and we'll look in the Scripture next week, because if I start going into Scriptures now, we're really going to be in trouble. Uh, so, Futurists see Revelation 4, 1, at least pre-tribulation rapture believers, as opposed to mid- and post-tribulation rapture believers. See, Revelation 4.1 is the rapture of the church. Chapters 4 through 19 refer to a period known as the seven-year tribulation period. 
During this time, God's judgments are actually poured out upon mankind as they are revealed in the seals, bowls, and trumpets. Chapter 13 describes a literal future world uh, empire headed by a political leader called the Antichrist, which is pictured by a beast. Chapter 19 refers to Christ's second coming and the battle of Armageddon. This is followed by a literal 1,000-year rule of Christ upon the earth in chapter 20. And chapters 21 and 22 are events that follow the millennium, the creation of a new heaven and new earth, and the arrival of the heavenly city upon the earth. Leaving out a lot of details, that's a generality of what the futurists believe. So as I was reading that, you know, hopefully you picked up on some of that and was like, yeah, that's exactly how I see it. That's exactly, you know, what I've been taught. It's exactly what, uh, you know, is, is happening here in Revelation. So you've got the rapture, you have the tribulation period, you have the Antichrist coming up in the tribulation period. You've got Christ returning at the Battle of Armageddon. You've got, you know, judgment, resurrection, millennium, a thousand years, and then the new heavens and the new earth. So that's a overview of the futurist view in Revelation. Uh, some more interesting details about this view, and I've added some, some of this just because a lot of people that believe in the futurist view don't really know these things, so I want to give people information. Uh, around the mid-1500s, um, now there's been a sense of futurism, you know, from the beginning, from the early church. There are those you know, early on that even expected and, you know, some type of an antichrist figure. You know, there was a time that Revelation didn't really hold a prominent place at all in the church. There wasn't much going on with the book uh, of Revelation. Uh, so there's always been some form, even though not widely taught, not widely accepted, of a futures view of Revelation. But where things really start to kick off for the futures view in history is in the 1500s. There was a Catholic Jesuit by the name of Francisco Ribera. And Francisco Ribera... Uh, of course, worked, you know, in the Catholic Church as a Jesuit priest. And that's the time the historicist view was really coming to fruition. And there was a lot of heat on the Pope in the Catholic Church because you have these reformers and these people within the church that are now rebelling against the church, calling the Pope the Antichrist. So what Francisco Ribera does is he takes, he takes Daniel, he takes Revelation, he takes the Antichrist, and he stretches them way off into the future separate from what the historicists believe, so it would kind of take the heat off the Pope. So he would say, okay, you know, the Pope is not the Antichrist because all these things are yet to come way in the future. Uh, so he published writings in the 1500s, Francisco Ribera did, um, and he stretched a lot of that. Then you come to the mid-1800s, the 1830s, and there was a man by, John, by the name of John Nelson Darby. And through another person right before him, he picked up on Francisco Rivera's writings, and John Nelson Darby, who was a Plymouth Brethren, uh, really grabbed hold of the futurist view and essentially created what we refer to today as the dispensational view of Revelation, or dispensationalism. Um, that's, that's the popular mainstream view today. That, that's the term for it, dispensationalism. Uh, the view of, you know, the rapture of the church, the seven-year tribulation period, you know, the Antichrist, the return, then the return of Christ at the end of that, thousand-year literal reign of Christ. All those are a part of a system called dispensationalism that John Darby put together. And John Darby began to teach this over in England, and a man named C.I. Schofield grabbed a hold of John Nelson Darby's teachings. And you may recognize the name of C.I. Schofield from the Schofield Reference Bible. Uh, the first one, the first, the first Bible I had when I called into the 
to the ministry. Somebody stuck a, a Schofield Reference Bible right in front of me and said, this is the Bible uh, that you need. Uh, and the Schofield Reference Bible influenced more generations of preachers and teachers in America than probably any other resource uh, itself. I mean, it was right there along with the Bible. It was one of the first popular Bibles in America that had the Scripture and then the notes at the bottom. And people would read the notes at the bottom just like they did the Scripture at the top. I mean, it was all uh, inspired. And the driving force behind a lot of C.I. Schofield's notes was dispensationalism and John Nelson Darby's teaching. So when Schofield wrote his reference Bible, and especially when it came over to America, this view of Revelation just took off. I mean, just absolutely took off. Then you had 1948 to come, and you had, um, you know, uh, Israel recognized as a nation again, and that's one of the tenets of John Nelson Darby's teaching, and that really set the firestorm of dispensationalism off because now we see Israel restored. That's the sign of God's prophetic time clock that has started ticking again. And from 1948 began the countdown uh, to the end because that had to be the sign that signaled the end and all these things. So this is when the futures view and dispensationalist view really has taken off. And that's how it became the most popular view in America uh, today. And it's taken over you know, the airwaves and the bookstores and, and all of that. Of course, that led to, we'll probably talk about it in a minute, but that led to, you know, a lot of speculation now about how the book of Revelation is being fulfilled. Um, you know, because we were told through dispensationalism that once you see Israel restored, within that generation would come the end. And most Christians saw the generation, the biblical generation as being 40 years. So if you take 40 years and that it's 1948, you get 1988. And you know, of course, I remember hearing you know, VHS cassette tapes of John Hagee, and, you know, he's naming dates, and he's talking about the Russian rulers and this, and he's talking about the common market in the European Union. So this popular view has, you know, again, really led to a lot of what I call prophetic speculation versus prophetic interpretation. And really what's happened is now you go to a used Christian bookstore and you've got all these books talking about Saddam Hussein and, and, and Gorbachev and, you know, all of these things that happened in the 80s and 90s as sons, and now all those books are outdated and they're being sold for a quarter at the used bookstore. So it did lend to what I call an overemphasizing of the book of Revelation, an overemphasizing where we're looking for everything to be assigned. And it still happens, and it still happens. So if you want to make some money, just write your end time book, and it's going to sell, and uh, just take something that's going on in the world and write about it, and you can make some money off of that. You know, I say that jokingly, but that's really what happened. I think we've all seen that in one aspect or another. Um, so the futures view is widely held today. Um, we talked about that. Uh, such, uh, the people that hold this view today are those that we're very familiar with. Charles Ryrie, John Wal uh, Walvert, and Dwight Pentecost are really the scholars behind, you know, a lot of the teaching that happened in, say, Dallas Theological Seminary and Moody Bible Institute. Um, Obviously, guys like Tim LaHaye, you know, with the Left Behind series, uh, you know, took the narrative of the dispensational view and put it in story form and sold billions and billions of books uh, because of that. You know, John Hagee, Jack Van Impey, you know, David Jeremiah, Perry Stone, the list goes on and on uh, of the people today uh, because it's, again, the most popular view uh, that has risen today. Then I have down here the key teachings of the dispensational view. 
And I want to spend some time on this because here's what I've come to find out as well. And this, and this is true for me, so I'm speaking from experience. All right, when I was young, I believed in the rapture of the church because I was told, you know, that's what to believe in. But I didn't know why. You know, if I was to ask people today, why do you believe in the rapture? Or what's the purpose of the rapture? Most people say, well, the rapture, you know, God's going to take the church off the earth so the church won't have to go through the tribulation period. Okay, but why won't the church have to go through the tribulation period? Um, because God's not going to pour out his wrath upon us. Well, what I've come to find out is these beliefs have, you know, a foundation to them. And it's part of the system called dispensationalism. People have beliefs, but don't know why they have those beliefs or where those beliefs even come from. So I've listed down here, I've chosen five of these, of the major beliefs that undergird the popular dispensational view. So if we believe aspects of the dispensational view, this is why we believe them. I've listed five of them. First of all, one of the key distinctions of the dispensational view is the distinction between two covenant peoples of God. And that is the church and national Israel. This was something that arose in the 1800s with John Nelson Darby. A re-emphasis on the nation of Israel. Because from AD 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem, Israel you know, didn't play a huge part. And we know with the, with, the recon, with, you know, with the recognition in 1948 of you know, Israel as a nation, you know, them trying to come back in the years preceding that, that was a huge event. It was a huge uh, worldwide event, and it was seen as Bible prophecy. But you go back and read the historicists, you read the reformers, they have nothing to say about Israel. They're not expecting Israel to be restored in God's uh, in covenant with God again. Uh, but dispensationalism says that Israel, God basically set Israel aside at the cross because they rejected him. And God chose to work through the church. Well, one day, God is going to set the church aside and go back to work with Israel again and restore them and bring them back to prominence and bring back the Old Testament promises and fulfill what they see as unfulfilled promises to Israel. So that's a key tenet of dispensationalism. God set Israel aside to work through the church. One day he's going to rapture the church off so he can restore Israel again. That's a distinction that was never made in the history of the church until 200 years ago. Number two, the dispensational view is dependent upon the interpretation of Daniel chapter 9. There's a few key things that without that, the view falls apart for most of these views. The view to dispensationalism is Daniel chapter 9. If Daniel chapter 9 is not the way the futurists interpret it, then the majority of the futurist view just falls apart. The dispensational view is dependent upon the interpretation of Daniel 9. Daniel 9 sees is a prophecy that's given to Daniel, and the futurists see a gap in that prophecy. It's a gap of 490 years. It's a prophecy of 490, a prophecy of 490 years. The dispensationalists see that the last seven years are stopped and pushed thousands of years into the future, what we call the gap of Daniel 9. And that gap is so important because without that gap, you do not have a future seven-year tribulation period. You don't have a future time of tribulation that's a literal seven years. So you have to have the gap in Daniel 9 of thousands of years 
to have a seven-year tribulation period for all of these scenarios to happen for the dispensational view. So the gap postpones the last seven years of Daniel's prophecy thousands of years into the future. So that is a key tenet. You know, the next view we'll look at, the Preterist view, it has a key tenet as well that it rises and falls upon. But this is the dispensational uh, dependency upon Daniel 9. Number three, uh, the belief that the church will be taken up off of the earth prior to a seven-year tribulation period. This is called a pre-tribulational rapture. A pre-tribulational rapture that the church will be taken off the scene before the seven-year tribulation period. Um, Again, I had somebody in my family come up to me just, I think it was a couple of years ago. And he said, man, I met this pastor in town and he doesn't even believe in a rapture. He said, isn't that crazy? I mean, it's clearly taught in the Bible. And I responded, did you know up until 200 years ago, nobody believed in the rapture of the church? in the church, at least a pre-tribulational rapture. You know, many people saw the rapture and the second coming as the same thing at the end of history, but a pre-tribulational rapture, that was not taught or believed in the church until John Nelson Darby in the 1830s, where the church would be raptured before a seven-year tribulation period. So again, he, he was astonished because he met somebody that didn't believe that. And the fact is, and it's the fact, the church hadn't believed that in its existence. And a lot of people don't know that. Um, but that's what dispensational does. Uh, it has this pre-tribulation rapture. And then, of course, some people believe that it'll be a mid-tribulation rapture, three and a half years into the tribulation. Then there are post-tribulation rapture that says the rapture will happen at the end of the tribulation. But the purpose of a pre-tribulation rapture, according to John Nelson Darwin dispensationalism, is for God to, not, not just God's going to feel sorry for the church and take them off so they don't suffer wrath, but it's to rapture the church off of the earth so that God can restore Israel back to her glory. And they're going to rebuild the temple, and they're going to reinstitute animal sacrifices, and they're going to bring back the priesthood because you have to have a temple to offer sacrifices for the Antichrist to come in and sit in the temple, you know, and stop the animal sacrifices in the midpoint of the tribulation period. So that's the purpose of the rapture. So the rapture is not just to get us out of here so we don't suffer. It's so God can bring back an established covenant with national Israel again. Which leads us to number four. Number four is the kingdom was delayed. Jesus came bringing the kingdom of God. And the kingdom has its roots in Israel, in David. Because as we mentioned Sunday, God promised David that a king would sit on his throne and establish his kingdom forever. Well, the Jews are still waiting for that. And the dispensationalists are still waiting for that. So they believe one day Israel will be restored. Jesus will physically come back, sit on the physical throne of David in physical Jerusalem and rule and reign and fulfill the kingdom. But in the meantime, the kingdom was delayed. Jesus came to bring it. He offered it to Israel. They rejected it. Uh, So the kingdom offer was withdrawn until Jesus physically returns to earth and sets up a 1,000-year kingdom to reign from David's throne in Jerusalem. Number five, uh, I mentioned this earlier, Israel has to rebuild the temple, reinstate the priesthood, reinstitute animal sacrifices. And I remember studying this view in Bible college, 
you know, and the guys in Bible college would take trips to Israel and they'd come back and they were all excited because they're like, you know, they're, they're tracing the bloodline of the Levitical priests and they're trying to find the Levitical priests in Israel. And, and there was a red heifer born, the first red heifer born in, in thousands of years because you have to have the blood of the heifer to sprinkle on the altar. And they're rebuilding the furniture of the temple and Israel's preparing to rebuild the temple. And I think some Christians are more excited about the Jews rebuilding the temple than the Jews are about the Jews rebuilding uh, the temple. Uh, but that is a major construct of dispensationalism. You have to go back and build a temple, introduce, you know, reintroduce animal sacrifices, establish the priesthood, because you're going to have an Antichrist that makes a peace treaty, but then breaks it three and a half years into it and walks into the temple of God, declaring himself God, causing the sacrifices uh, to cease and breaking the covenant that he makes. So those are five things that undergird all of dispensationalism that a lot of people that even believe the view don't understand. But I want us to understand and have a full view of, you know, why these things are so. It's because there's a distinction between Israel and the church. Uh, Daniel 9, you have to have a gap in Daniel 9. You know, the church will be taken off so God can reestablish Israel. Uh, the kingdom was delayed, so Jesus has to return and set up a thousand-year kingdom. And then Israel has to be re uh, you know, reformed as a nation, or they can rebuild the temple, reinstitute the priesthood, and reinstitute animal sacrifices. So I wanted to point that out because I didn't know those things. And I wasn't taught those things. So if I believe something, I want to know why I believe it. Uh, and then if you believe it and you know why you believe it, then, you know, that's great. That's what we should do. Um, so I've all, I want to challenge people, don't just believe something, know why you believe what you believe, and bring it from Scripture itself, not just because Somebody taught it to me, who somebody taught to them, and somebody taught them, and somebody taught it to them. Um, we want to know why. So that's why I wanted to highlight those key teachings on dispensationalism. Some of the positive aspects of this view um, is that it is the most widely held and taught view in our modern times, in the past 50, 60 years or so. There is no doubt about that. It has risen to prominence, and it is everywhere, and it has had great influence over the church. Um, it's also the most popular view among Christians, spawning countless books and movies. Uh, the Futures view claims to take the events of Revelation more literally than any other view. That is one of the positive aspects that uh, the Futurists see of their view. Another positive aspect of the view is adherents often uh, view the events in Revelation and harmonize those with current events in the book of Revelation. Uh, and also, this view shows a total completion of God's plan for the future of humanity and the earth. And that's what people want to know. People want to know, how is all this going to wrap up? You know, how's God going to bring all this to a close? And futurism shows us exactly how God will do that. And there's charts, and there's books, and there's, you know, chronological timelines laid out to show this is exactly how God's going to wrap up all of human history. And that's what people to know. So those are some of the positive aspects that the futurists point to their um, view. Some of the critical aspects uh, of this view is a, a lot of what the futurists take as positive can also be critical. And we see that with both, with, with all aspects as well. Um, one of the critical aspects is a relatively new doctrine as a total. Um, the whole of dispensationalism, you know, 200 some years old, the gap in Daniel's prophecy, you know, the pre-tribulation rapture, the modern restoration of Israel. Uh, does that mean it's wrong if it's new? No, that does not mean that it's wrong if it's new. Um, 
You know, it could be one of those things that, I mean, and there are, you know, aspects of this view that were taught early on, you know, and throughout history, even though it was definitely not as widely held and accepted as it was today. So just because it's new, does that mean it's wrong? Well, I would say no. That is not a reason to cast it um, aside. But that is a critical aspect of it. Um, Another critical aspect is this view renders the book mostly irrelevant to the original audience outside of the first three chapters and to 90% of the church that's lived up until today um, because these these views were thousands of years in the future, what's going to happen in the future. Even to Christians today that believe in the pre-tribulation rapture from chapter 4 to the return of Christ is irrelevant to us because we're not going to be here. I mean, we're going to be raptured. Why do we care what's going to happen? Why do we care to know what's going to happen? What does it mean to us? What does it mean anything to us? If we're going to be raptured, we're going to be in heaven. So, you know, one of the critical aspects is revelation, you know, really doesn't, it's not really relevant, you know, to a lot of the church age. Um, Also, this view demands a revival of many first century realities. Think about the scenario you have to have in futurism. You have to have a restoration of national Israel. You have to have a rebuilt temple, reinstituted priesthood. You have to have sacrifices going on. You have to have a revived Roman Empire. That's why when the European Union and the common market, you know, came together in the 90s, people were like, oh, that's it. This is the revived Roman Empire. These are the ten horns on the beast. This is Europe. This is a revival of the Roman Empire in the form of the European common market. Uh, then they started adding nations, and they got the ten nations, and all oh, these are the ten horns on the, you know, on the heads of the beast of Revelation. This is this is it. So you have to have a revival of the Roman Empire because most people see Rome as involved in the book of Revelation. And obviously, if these are not about things in the first century, you have to have Rome as a part of the future view. So you have to have a revolved Roman Empire. Then you have to have a world ruler that's going to step on the scene, that's going to, uh, you know, persecute the church as well. Uh, so, and here's the thing, and we'll talk about it probably next week, because it's time to go already. But in the first century, you already had all of these in place. You already had the nation of Israel you had a temple, you had a priesthood, you had sacrifices, you had the Roman Empire, you had you know, emperors like Nero that are on the scene. So for the dispensational view, you have to recreate what was already created in the first century through you know, taking the church off the scene. You know, the, somehow they got to get the Muslims off the Temple Mount uh, and have the Jews build the temple on the Temple Mount without everybody nuking everybody on the planet Earth today. Uh, still can't wait to see how that's going to happen because uh, I don't think Islam's going to go silently. Uh, so you have to recreate a lot of stuff uh, that you know this view is expecting, which is one of the critical aspects of it. Um, doesn't mean it's not true. That's just a critical aspect. Um, this view is also seen as maybe an overemphasis on the importance of national Israel and God's plan and undermines the importance of the church and the new covenant realities. Um, to really get a view of Israel, you need to go back and read what Romans says, what Paul says, what Hebrew says, uh, to see if those things line up with the dispensational view of Revelation. Um, while an emphasis is placed on a literal interpretation one of the critical aspects of dispensationalism is that it really fails to recognize the symbolic nature of apocalyptic literature. 
Um, this view lends more toward prophetic speculation than prophetic interpretation, affectionately called newspaper exegesis, that we are interpreting revelation by the newspaper, not by Scripture itself. And historically, comparing prophecy where current events has, frankly, been disastrous uh, and has been embarrassing at some points in time is because of how, you know, I know it's not everybody's fault that believes in futurism, you know, that one you know, guy over here that's crazy predicts a date and says the end of the world is going to happen on this date and it doesn't happen. And, but it makes everything look bad uh, when those things happen. And again, you've had tons and tons of books and, you know, things that people were sure this is a sign this is going to happen and it ended up being nothing. And, and those things hurt. So, you know, I would encourage people that hold a futurist view, don't get into prophetic speculation. Don't believe everything that's happening is going to fit into the book of Revelation um, because you're going to drive yourself crazy. You're going to be looking for things and trying to fit it in there and, you know, let, let it play out. That, that, that's what I like to say. Um, I would rather be quiet and then uh, say, yeah, I thought that might would have happened. Instead of saying, this is what's going to happen, then it doesn't. Then, then you look silly. So uh, I've always tried to stay away as best as I could from the prophetic uh, speculation of that. So that's the futurist view, the dispensational view of Revelation, certainly the most popular view. I was hoping to cover all four of these today, but I knew, and I knew deep down that wasn't going to happen. But um, I wanted to go through you know, some of that. And th that one should be very familiar. So next week, you know, bring this paper back next week. I'll have some copies of the last couple of pages, you know, if you don't remember. But next week we will cover um, the preterist view and the idealist view of Revelation.